Welcome to another episode of The Greenhouse Athens, a podcast from The Greenhouse Church in Athens, Tennessee. Well, this past week, we took a break from our study on Acts to have a night of worship and communion. Odds are, if you've been around church or have even watched a movie that references a church, you've heard this term, communion. But what is communion? Why do we practice it? Who can participate? On this episode, Todd Humbert, our lead pastor, will hopefully answer some of your questions in an episode titled, All About Communion. Hey, Greenhouse Church, our Athens community and the world. Uh, This is Todd Humbert. This past week, we had a night of worship and music where we also took communion. And I want to really zero in on communion or what we call the Lord's Supper. It has been probably one of the most divisive issues in church history, particularly among the reformers, Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, and uh, and then also from the Roman Catholic Church during that time. And it is um, particularly uh, uh, of interest because this is one of the things that Jesus tells us to do in uh, following him. Do this in remembrance of me. I can remember when I was a chaplain at a residence hall at a university. And the way that I introduced myself was probably looking back not very wise. And I told the the entire uh, freshman boys that lived in this hall, about 120 of them, I said, the reason I live by myself, guys, I'm your chaplain, but the reason I live by myself is because uh, I'm a cannibal. And I just paused for a second for dramatic, you know, uh, moment. And then I and I said, um, and then I read from John chapter six, where Jesus said, you know, if whoever follows me is going to have to, he's going to have to feast on my blood and, and, um, eat my flesh. And, and, um, it, it probably wasn't the greatest way for me to introduce my services as a chaplain into the residence hall by telling them I was a cannibal. However, this was one of the accusations of the Romans against early Christians because they had what were called love feasts. And, and during these love feasts of these kind of these uh, closed doors, behind doors, uh, these, these feasts where they, they ate a meal together in love with one another. Um, and they talked about eating the body uh, of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, and they accused them of being cannibals, which, of course, they weren't. So and there's been, you know, not just within the church, but outside the church, this has been one, one of the more confusing things about the church. And let me, so hopefully we can unpack this of. Uh, um, as as best as possible, and, and let me just say from the start that communion or the Lord's Supper, or whatever it is that how you refer to it, it is it is a meal that is all about Jesus. It, it is a meal. It is one of the signposts, or it is one of the uh, ordinances or sacraments or whatever language you choose to use that points us to Jesus and reminds us of our dependency upon Jesus. So everything that we talk about when it when it comes to communion or the Lord's Supper, keep in mind that this is all about Jesus. It's all about us thinking of him and, and our minds resting on his finished work on the cross for us and the hope that he provides in the resurrection. So everything that we look at in this meal is to remind us of our ongoing need for him. You see, Jesus gave the church two primary ordinances or sacraments, uh, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And baptism points forward or points backward to Jesus. Um, also, it points 
forward in, in some sense uh, into the resurrection that, that, w- that will come when we come out of the water. But it points backwards to Jesus in Romans chapter 6. It says it's kind of a symbol of the death of Christ. Like we are dying with Jesus in the water, you know, and then we're raised to life. And then, but, and, 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 and usually baptism is just this one-time act. You know, it reminds us that, okay, we are in covenant relationship with God, sealed by the Spirit. We are, we are secure in that walk with Jesus. Baptism is a one-time thing. But communion reminds us that we need the gospel. We need Jesus over and over and over and over again in our lives. So we, we receive communion, the bread and the wine or the bread and the juice, to remind us that the, the same blood of Christ that took upon our sin, the punishment for our sin, the cross, the same cross that we needed on that first step into the journey with Jesus is the same Jesus we need every moment of every day of our life. And so um, communion provides us that ongoing reflection and, and reminder of our ongoing need to be cleansed with the gospel. Not that we aren't right with God, but just in our relationship with him, we need that um, uh, we need to hang on to our dependency on Jesus. So let, let's look at some passages here when it comes to communion, okay? Uh, the, the first one we're going to look at is, is Luke, and we're going to use that as a base, Luke 22. And Jesus says, you know, uh, when he gave the bread in 22:19, he says, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of of me. So uh, what Jesus is is taking this Passover meal. So if if you are familiar with the Bible, uh God commanded back in Exodus that once a year uh his people would celebrate his deliverance of them from Egypt in the Passover meal and they would have a meal that would commemorate and celebrate God's deliverance of them. Well Jesus takes the elements, some of the elements of this meal and transforms them to talk about how he is delivering us from our bondage to sin. And he says, this is my body. So the bread, the unleavened bread that was given in the meal, it represented the body of Jesus. And he says, this is given to you. He broke it. He gave it to them. My body is broken is basically what he's saying. He broke it. He gave it to him. Do this in remembrance of me. So there is a a, when we celebrate communion, there is a past element. We look to the past to remember what Christ has done. And then in verse 20, says he took the cup after eating, saying, this is the blood. This is the cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. So um, there's this issue of covenant, which we talked about on Sunday. A covenant is, uh, is where two people or two parties agree to, to certain commitments and promises, mutually uh, binding and agreed upon promises. And God is saying here, Jesus is telling us he is making a covenant with us. He is um, obligating himself with certain promises in his blood, which Anybody from a Jewish context would understand that all the covenants that have been inaugurated of God in Exodus, for example, in Exodus 24, this covenant that God made with his people in Exodus 24, they would know that that covenant uh, was uh, brought about with the with the sprinkling of blood in Exodus 24, 8. And you can also see this talked about in Hebrews 918 where this covenant of God this old covenant of God was inaugurated with blood and, and Jesus is saying listen there is a new covenant in my blood there's a new covenant that I'm bringing about in my blood and and he's he's probably uh referring with this new covenant to 
um, passages like Jeremiah 31, where God says, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a new covenant, not like the one with your ancestors in Egypt, which they broke with their heart of stone. Instead, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Uh, you're going to know me from the least to the greatest. There's, there's going to be this inward transformation of your life, not just this outward behavior conformity to rules and regulations. There's going to be this inner transformation. And Jesus says, this is going to be brought about. You are going to be a transformed individual in my blood. There is something about the death of Jesus that brings about transformation for his people. And we have got to hang on that church. We've got to hang on Christ. Uh, like the song says, in Christ alone, my hope is found, you know, in Christ alone also our transformation is found in the giving of his spirit uh, so that we become new people. Well, Jesus is the one who inaugurated this covenant, this this obligating of God's self to us in his blood on the cross. And so that's what this meal uh, commemorates. This meal um, celebrates what Jesus did for us when he says, hey, this is my body broken for you, bread. This is my blood poured out for you, wine. So th uh, there is a... Um, so that's part of the present celebration. We talked about the the past um, in, the, in the in the present when we look at First uh, Corinthians eleven verses twenty three through twenty six. Uh, the Apostle Paul says he has uh, particularly a special revelation of this. This w with with Jesus and and Jesus had shown him the upper room with the disciples where he shared this last meal with them, and he's in verse twenty six of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we know that there's a past aspect to communion. We commemorate the Lord's death, but he says in verse 26, there's a present aspect. You are proclaiming his death. So there is also not just an enjoyment of celebrating the hope that we have in this new covenant, this new relationship that God has established with us through the blood of Jesus, but there's also a proclamation aspect. Right now, when we take communion, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. This is a visual symbol of the gospel. It's all about Jesus. This visual symbol of the gospel, just like baptism, we proclaim the Lord's death when we celebrate, take communion. And then it says, until he comes. So there's a future aspect. So communion also points forward to the future that Christ has been resurrected and there will be a future resurrection, which is pretty amazing that, that communion has this past aspect of commemorating or remembering Jesus, this present aspect of proclamation, and this future aspect that he is coming, that there is going to be um, a coming of Christ. There's a few other things I want to make sure that we understand about communion, that um, one, communion isn't just about something that we do individually. Though it is, it is something that we participate individually, but we also participate collectively because the the Bible lets us know that um, in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, in uh, uh, 16 and 17, let me read that, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So the, the um, uh, communion reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ. And he says it's here because it's one bread. I, I love how Paul is, is, is building uh, the unity of the church based on communion, which the word communion uh, kind of communicates 
community, so that we should be in unity as uh, the body of Christ, which kind of reminds me of, of Jesus when he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that if, if you come to the altar and you remember that you have something against someone or someone has something against you in an unnecessary way, then then you need to leave your gift at the altar and then be made right with your brother and then come back and offer that gift. So you know, one of the things that we... Um, how we do at Greenhouse is that we ask people to, to spend time in personal reflection and think, okay, am I unnecessarily at odds with anyone? And if I am, I need to make that right. I need to send a text, make a phone call, um, uh, you know, provide uh, whatever it is that, that that's in between me and this person unnecessarily, make it right. Because Jesus didn't just die for us to be reconciled to God, but also that we might be joined to one another in the body of Christ. So this is especially important for the church, that our church unity is a witness in the world, according to John 17, that our church unity uh, displays for the, the world the legitimacy of Jesus. And and also, um, 1 Corinthians 11 says something similar. There was, uh, there was division in their love feasts, or there was division in in their sharing of communion, and so Paul says in First Corinthians eleven twenty seven, if you drink or eat the bread in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So he says in verse twenty eight, let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And he makes a really strong warning in verse 30, one that we often don't talk about. Verse 30 says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And he goes on to talk about how what was happening in the Corinthian church was a lot of division. You can read the entire book of First Corinthians and you see that division was everywhere. And it was there was division at the Lord's table. And he's saying, listen, if, if you are not loving your neighbor as yourself, if you are disunified in the church unnecessarily, and uh, what was happening in the Corinthian church, they think, was the uh, the rich were getting there earlier and sharing communion, and the poor who were working late into the day didn't have anything to eat by the time they came to the communion meal, and, and so there was disunity within the church, and um, it was uh, getting pretty nasty. And so um, Paul is saying, listen, no, the, the bread that we break is one bread, and that ought to symbolize the unity that we have as a church. Um, and then he goes on to say in chapters 11 that if there is unnecessary disunity within the church, then you could be eating and drinking discipline or judgment upon yourself. And so it is so essential, Greenhouse, it is so essential, uh, church, that we maintain uh, unity exclusively on the person of Jesus. We maintain a necessary unity um, uh and not be unnecessarily divided. Um, so unity is absolutely essential when we look at communion. Another thing that when we look at communion, not just unity, but purity. Uh, if, if you read 1 Corinthians uh, 5, 7, it, he talks about cleansing out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump because you are unleavened. So one of the one of the leaven in Scripture is often a symbol of sin, and so he's saying, be unleavened, remove the leaven from your lump of dough. And uh, so c communion also is a time of reflection to think, okay, where 
am I uh, out of joint with God? Where am I unaligned in my life with the will of God? Where is intimacy being jeopardized with God because of sin in my life? So it's not just this uh, unity, I would say, is is a... Um, is a byproduct of our unity with Christ. So really the first examination should be, am I in Jesus? Am I celebrating the body and blood of the Lord because I am dependent upon him for my salvation? And furthermore, I am seeking to live a right relationship with him and the power of his spirit. And if the answer is no, then find out what it is that's a barrier to you and I coming to Christ. Remove that barrier. Remove whatever sin is is standing in the way and then celebrate the body and the blood that it is him that cleanses us. So we first look at our relationship with Christ and then in in a purity sort of way, and then we look at our relationship with each other in a unity sort of way. And when I use the word purity, I'm not, typically people talk about sexual purity. I'm not just talking about sexual purity. I'm, I meant like pure, just purity in general, that we are wanting to live pure lives with the Lord. And then we want to be unified with our brothers and sisters. So there is an individual call to repentance and reflection at the table with the Lord. And then there is a collective call that we need to be um, in repentance and having a just society with each other, a loving and generous and just society, just community with one another. I've often said before that the church is the garden of Eden in the wasteland of the world. And if we are disjointed and disunified with our brothers and sisters that we ought to be unified with, then we are not being that garden of Eden in the world. Um, what I said earlier that the uh, communion has had a really rough history. Uh, and what I mean by that is that there have been very divisive theologies, especially among the reformers in the 1500s, about uh, communion, what it means and what it stands for. So the Roman Catholic Church believes that communion literally becomes the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. That's why they don't throw any of it away. So if they're going to uh, bless it and it's going to become literally the body and blood of Jesus. And and um, and they take that from a literal reading of Jesus saying, this is my body. They also take it from uh, John chapter 6 where, where Jesus says, you've got to eat my flesh and, and drink my blood if you want any part with me. Um, and so they take a literal interpretation of what Jesus says. This is called transubstantiation. Um, but then uh, the reformers came along and say they they denied that. Okay, so the the early Catholic view of transubstantiation they did not think was a legitimate view. Instead, Martin Luther said he believed uh, what has come to be known as consubstantiation, which he didn't use that terminology. But consubstantiation says no, the the bread actually retains its elements of being a bread, and the wine actually retains its element of being wine. However. The body and blood of Jesus are hidden within and under these elements. So, yes, you do literally consume the body and blood of Jesus, but you also are consuming bread and wine. And so that's why they call it consubstantiation instead of transubstantiation. Trans meaning it's totally transformed. Con meaning it's with. So, uh, But there were other reformers that vehemently disagreed with Luther. One was a guy named Zwingli. And uh, Zwingli took the approach that probably most, you're most familiar with, is there is, uh, it's just purely symbolic. 
that the bread is just a symbol of the body and the blood is just a symbol of the wine and, and um, uh, or the wine is just a symbol of the blood. And, and, and the way they read that is, is uh, in John chapter 6, uh, John chapter 6 actually doesn't ever mention communion. It, it's just that it's been interpreted to look, look toward communion. Um, but John chapter 6, Jesus tells uh, them that the, the words that he speaks um, are spirit and life, not of flesh. And so in that same section in verse 63, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus seems to interpret himself that when he says, drink my blood and eat my flesh, it's, he's not literally talking about that. He's saying your, your life needs to be consumed with me. And Zwingli takes a symbolic approach that, um, uh, this is his body, you know, and one of the arguments that uh, I, I believe that he used is is that there was an absence of the word is, and perhaps it was in Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel where the word is is not actually there, like this is my body. It just says this my body, um, and I can't remember which which gospel that's in, or maybe it's it's uh, maybe it's in the Corinthians. I, I'd have to go back and research that, and so forgive me on that. But um, this my body. He, he's saying this, this is just merely a symbol of of the body and blood of Christ. So when we take it, it's a symbolic uh, of our dependency upon Christ. Now, Calvin, John Calvin, probably you've heard of Calvinism. John Calvin took a, a similar approach, but but sort of amplified it a little bit. He said this this meal is more than just a symbol. It, it's mysterious um, that literally when we come to the Lord's table and have communion with him, it's as if we're caught up to the heavens with Jesus as a child of God, and we are sharing in this meal with Christ. And so he took sort of a mysterious approach that there was, it wasn't just a, a symbol, but there was something powerful in the participation of this meal. And, and so you, you see this varied approach throughout history, this transubstantiation, this consubstantiation, symbolic, you know, merely, and, and then mystery. And, and so you, you, you get, you've got a lot of varied approaches. So you might even say, Todd, well, where does the greenhouse come down on this? And uh, I would want, want to say that we like to major on the major and minor on the minors. However, this is a pretty big deal, especially considering church history. And and I would say that Greenhouse has some sort of approach between Zwingli and Calvin, the way we understand scripture, that yes, it is symbolic, but it is more than just symbolism, that there is a powerful working of God when we share communion, which is why Paul says that some of you have gotten sick and died because you've come to the table in an unworthy manner, not loving your neighbor as yourself, not reflecting on your sin in God's presence. So that's, it's not just a meal. Uh, it's not just bread or a wafer and drinking juice. It is, there is something powerful and mysterious in this meal. So we have some practical questions too. Maybe you have some practical questions about, about the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, how frequent should we, should we do it? Churches do it every week. Some churches uh, do it once a quarter. Some churches do it once a year. You know, there, there isn't really a biblical mandate for how often we do it. Uh, Acts chapter 2, it says that they did it, I think, every day. They, they ate meals in people's homes daily. And most commentators think in Acts 2.42 that they were sharing, actually, the Lord's Supper uh, daily. So what used to be the commemoration of the Passover once a year now has been a daily commemoration of, of the body and blood of Christ. And uh, some churches do it every week. Uh, we do it, you know, a few times a year. 
Um, and there's really no biblical mandate for how often you do it, but just that you remember the Lord. Some methods, there's some methods, some think that you have to drink from a common cup, um, that you, what I call the rip and dip method, or some call intinction, where you take the bread and dip it in the wine and, and then um, and then eat, which is my preference, to be honest. I'm just going to tell you my preference is that right now with uh, all this COVID stuff, we've we've started to use... Um, individual wafers and individual uh, cups of of juice, and I call it coffee creamer communion uh, or commercialized communion, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus had in mind when he taught us about communion, because communion uh, has to have this intrinsic community, and instead we get these individualized cups of, uh, um, you know, little peel back, peel back, and eat and drink. And uh, But it's kind of where we're at right now with all this uh, COVID pandemic uh, things. So uh, there's also another question and a highly, highly debated question about who can participate in the Lord's Supper. Is this an open table? So some denominations say, yes, this is an open table and anyone can come to this table. You know, um, is this a closed table? No, only baptized members of this particular congregation can come to this table or only professing members of uh, the body of Christ, the professing followers of Jesus can come. So the where, where Greenhouse comes down on this is it, there's a combination in there that it is open to anyone who professes to follow Christ, who has in reflection um, yielded the rights of their life, surrendered their rights of their life to Jesus, and has become right with their neighbor. And so we, we ask those questions. Are you a follower of Christ? And are you right with your neighbor? And and um, if, if not, uh, get those two things uh, checked off the list, so to speak, get, get right in those two areas and then come and celebrate because it's really, this is what this meal symbolizes. And if you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, it doesn't mean anything to you. It's just bread and bread and juice. Uh, uh, but as a follower of Christ, we are celebrating the body and blood of Jesus. And, and if you're a follower of Christ and you're at odds with somebody unnecessarily, then this is not going to mean as much because part of the meal is a sharing in the life of the members. So I hope that this uh, lengthy podcast has helped clarify a few things about communion. Let me just uh, review a few things. One, it's a remembrance of Jesus. The past, the past. It is a present proclamation of Jesus. That's what it, it, we do when we eat it. And First Corinthians 11 tells us. And then there's a future aspect. We do this until He comes. It, that it reminds us that we are participating in the past of Christ's death and resurrection for us until he returns to bring us to himself. It's a new covenant in his blood. There's He has inaugurated a new covenant, a new opportunity to have a relationship with God through Jesus' blood. He has uh, presented us into God's presence, as one scripture says, pure, holy, and undefiled in his presence in Colossians, so that we might know God and have an opportunity to, to be introduced into a relationship with God as our Father and us as, as adopted children. Uh, it, it also represents the unity. We have one bread that we make, the unity of the, the unity of the body, the love that we share for one another. And then first, our reconciliation with God, the purity of our heart before him that, that we look inwardly and find, is there anything that we need cleansed of as we come back to remind ourselves of our great need for the gospel? This is something we do individually, um, but also something we do collectively. History In history, you've got transubstantiation, where the elements are transformed into literally the body and blood of Jesus, or consubstantiation, where the, the elements aren't transformed, but they, they take on themselves 
both the body and blood of Jesus within and under? Or is it just symbolic? Or is it this mysterious meal that we share with him in the heavens? I hope that this podcast has been helpful if you've wanted to dive in more. Uh, if you're looking to read more on communion, I encourage you to look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, Mark 14, verses 22 through 25, 1 Corinthians uh, 11 verses 23 and following in Luke uh, Luke 22. These are the places particularly where it speaks most about communion and um, our communion with God and our communion with uh, one another as we remember the whole point of it is to display the gospel is to remind us of our great need for Jesus, our ongoing need for Christ and his salvation in our life, his gracious work of, of saving us and, and that's why we, we commemorate his body and blood. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us uh, this, this act, this ordinance, this sacrament, this, this um, participation in your body and blood to remind us of, of our desperate need for you to continually provide us cleansing from sin. Even though we are already cleansed um, from judgment, Yet this relationship, this ongoing relationship you want us to have with you, we constantly need you, Jesus. Uh, thank you for giving this visual reminder of why we need you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You can find the link to Sunday's worship night along with the link to our page on the Church Center app in the show notes. We're currently going through something we're calling the 100-Day Puzzle Challenge where we're watching one Bible project video for 100 days to help us gain understanding of the narrative of Scripture. The link for this playlist will be in the show notes as well. If you have any questions, please send us a message on Instagram or Facebook at The Greenhouse Athens. We'd love to connect with you. Thanks for listening.